have you ever seen the game show, Let's Make a Deal? That show started all the way back in 1963, and believe it or not, it is now bigger than ever. Since we are on lockdown, it is getting audiences that it has never had before. Interesting history of the show. It died for a while, and then it was reborn, and now it has come back, and it is again more popular than ever. Here's how it works. Contestants uh, get dressed up, and then they get picked to come down and make a deal with the host, who is Wayne Brady, who can be a pretty funny guy. The show ends with what they call the big deal. What happens at the big deal? If you're the biggest winner throughout the show, you have the opportunity to take everything you have and trade it for the chance to win the big prize. Now, to get the big prize, you have to find it behind door number one, door number two, or door number three. And you have to deal with all of the people yelling at you which door to pick, like they know. And you watch people, and it's funny because they look back at their family, and there, there's a whole row is the family there, and one's going, door number one, door number two, door number Like, even the family can't agree. I know your family always agrees on everything, but even the family can't agree. But here's what it comes down to. There's three doors. There's two losing options, and there's only one winning option. Now, the book of Habakkuk is deep. It really is as the prophet digs deep into the mysteries of God and asks God some really, really pointed and tough questions. Stuff like, God, why are things the way they are? Why do you do what you do? Why does it seem, God, like you do nothing sometimes? Why does it seem that you don't even always do what's right? Most of that was in chapter 1, and as we come into chapter 2, in verse 2, the Lord says to Habakkuk, write this vision down and make it plain. We said last time and the time before, make it simple for people. And in verse 3, he says, listen, uh, it's going to seem like it's slow and it's coming, but wait, because it is going to happen. And as we come to verse 4, it's as if the right curtain in let's make a deal goes up. And the, the curtain is raised, and it's plain as day, the big prize is revealed. How to get to heaven is revealed, but here's what you have to know. Here's the catch. You have to take Everything you have, just like let's make a deal, and you have to trade everything for the big prize. Although the Lord's going to make it very clear to us what's the right door. So let's lead our, read our verse again, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So while in Let's Make a Deal, you have three choices. Here, there's two. You can either be a man or a woman of pride or a man or a woman of faith. And that's because the Scripture teaches there's only two destinations for us 
once we pass from this world into the next. It's either heaven or hell. It is one or the other. And Habakkuk, like the rest of Scripture, shows us there's only one way to get the prize, but he also shows us that there are two common ways to lose the prize. In other words, he's going to show us there's three choices, but really two lead to the same place, and only one leads to heaven. And, and one of those ways to lose may come as an absolutely huge surprise to many of you. In fact, dare I say, one of the ways to lose may insult you, so much so that when Jesus told people about this way to lose, it's actually one of the reasons why he got killed. It's one of the reasons why people couldn't stand him so much. So verse 4 is the central point of the book of Habakkuk. And I guarantee you, as we go through this, it is the key to get you to heaven if you want to go there. But if you do want to go there, it's going to require on your part and on my part what we call humility. So the book of Habakkuk, which was written about 600 years before Jesus lived, shows us that there are two doors of pride and one door of faith. And so the title of our message today is, Which Door Will You Choose? Will you choose one of the two doors of pride or will you choose the door of faith? Well, if you're taking notes, door number one is the surprising door. It's the one everybody's yelling for, thinking, of course, that's the door that's going to win. And it is the religious door, the religious door. Now, remember, Israel were the Yahwehists. They were the worshipers of the true and living God, uh, particularly in southern Israel. Southern Israel was in much better condition than northern. The northern Israel part now has already been taken over. The Assyrians had raided them a uh, hundred years earlier. And, and so Habakkuk lives in the area on the, in the south of Judea, and we also think of Judea and the city of Jerusalem. That's where the home of the temple was. That's where the people went for all of the great feasts and high holy days. We would say that Judea and Jerusalem was very religious. Now let's go back to chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and look through the eyes of the prophet what the religious people were like in his day. And he's really, in verse 1 and two, verse 2 through 4, he's really praying. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity or sin and cause me to see trouble? For plundering, stealing, and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arrives. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound like people living for God? No, but they'll still go to church. They'll still go to temple. Verse 4, therefore the law is powerless. Now I think that's the law of Moses. He's like, we have 
the word of God, but it seems to have no power over these people to help them to live their lives. What is wrong with that? And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Now, if you have not been with us, this gives us a brief snapshot of much of what, except for the period of King Josiah, of what much of the last hundred plus years life has been like in the city of God. And so Habakkuk says to God, look at this. Look at these phony and immoral religious people living in a complete state of unbelief. And it's like he says to God, what are you doing? Don't you do anything about it. I mean, how can you, how can you sit there and watch this? You, even I see it. What are you going to do about it, God? And if you notice, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're here today. And I'm going to side with you if you maybe think this way, because much of our secular society is very quick to point this out about a lot of people who profess to be Christians. That we say we're one thing, and then we live out a completely different way. And, and, this, and the sad part of it all is that most church people seem completely oblivious to it. They're like, oh, they're just judging us. In some cases, yes. In some cases, they're wrong. Sometimes people will challenge me on stuff, and I'll say, oh, well, you know, give me an example of that. Or, or tell me how many people have done that to you or something like that. But there's other places where it is completely legitimate. You say, well, that's not fair, Pastor Jim. That's not fair. We're not like everybody else. Really? Really? Okay. Just a question. Stir the pot of trouble just a little. What do we primarily pray for in a church? When you get prayer requests over a prayer request line or something like that, or, or people get together and pray, what? well, a lot of times we pray for people's health. Nothing wrong with praying for that. Nothing wrong with that at all. A lot of times it's praying for the health of people we don't even know because we don't want to be honest with what's going on in our lives. We'll be telling you what's going on in our friend's life or our neighbor's life. How often are we praying for blessings, things that we want, things that, that we desire? There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But it's, it's not balanced. When was the last time you prayed for your own personal or your friends, family, co-workers, or your church's repentance. That they would turn, that you and I would turn, that we would turn from our earthly way of living to the way of living for God. When is the last time you heard anybody pray for purity? For what we put in front of our eyes, for our thought lives? for the ways that, that our minds are operating that are contrary to the word of God? When, when is the last time you begged God to, to really help the lives of our young people, not just our older people, but not just our young people, but older people too, but to be pure before God? When is the last time that you cried out for the glory of God to be seen in your life, in the life of your church, and in the life of your state, and your country, and the world. 
You see, I think a lot of times we realize we're more like the people of the world than we think that we really are. Now, here's the pushback. Oh, no, Pastor Jim, you got this all wrong. They were going to temple. They were going to church. Listen to some of the words that God says. They're not going to go up on the screen because I'm just taking words out of Isaiah chapter 1. Listen to some of the words that God uses to describe their services about 100 years earlier. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? I do not delight in them. God's like, what are you doing this for? He also says, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. You come in, you're all full of sin, you don't really care, and, you, and we're having a sacred meeting, and you're acting like it doesn't really matter. Your appointed feasts, my soul hates. This is God talking. They are troubled to me. I am weary of bearing them. I mean, how would you, how would you hate the fact that you, God all of a sudden shows up at your church service and goes like, ah. You're killing me. You're wearying me. This is an abomination to me. I'm insulted by this. He's still not more. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Now you say, well, that's just Isaiah. He's a bummer, man. He's a bummer. Plenty of other places where that's in the Bible. You might want to look at Amos 5. Similar wording, God says, I hate it. I despise what's going on. So here in chapter one, Habakkuk seems to be praying with a sense of horror. Lord, how can people who claim to believe in you be so callous towards you? How is it that they seem to be living just like everybody else? What difference? is religion making in their life. Habakkuk knows that religious religion cannot save them. Religion cannot rescue them. It cannot save you. It cannot save me. Nor can a casual, I believe in God or I'm a good person because that's not real faith. It's a said faith. You say it with your lips, but he's saying, they're not saying it with their lives. And Habakkuk knows something that deep, deep down, a lot of us know, especially if you're a Bible reader. If you're a Bible reader, you know this. It's like you don't want to talk about it. And even when people do talk about it, they're so cavalier in the way they talk about it and so casual in the way they talk about it I don't think they really believe it. But when I'm alone talking to God about it, man, I am, a, I am a hot mess, let me tell you. Because deep down, if you're a Bible reader, you know that God chastises a nation before he sends revival. That's what he does. He brings it down. He gets our attention before he brings revival. And I know two months ago, a lot of people were really much more conscious about God, and we're seeing in a lot of people a waning already. 
as they think it's not that big a deal. So now after many years, God has said, enough is enough. And then he tells them in chapter one, the wicked Babylonians, he tells Habakkuk, the wicked Babylonians are gonna take care of it. Those savage beasts we look at, and we're gonna look at them again next week, Lord willing. And Habakkuk is like, what? Did I hear you correctly? Are you kidding me? Are you gonna use the unrighteous to, to chastise your people? Well, isn't that what happened on the cross? God used the unrighteous to chastise his son so we could receive salvation? If you ask them, they would say, if you said, is sin bad? They go, yes, sin's bad. We learn about it in temple all the time. That's why we do our sacrifices. That's why we go to church. Yet, yet why do they continue to sin without caring? Because corruption has overpowered their conviction. The corruption of their hearts and what they want and what they're going to do has overtaken their conviction of the holiness of God. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel said this, the soul who sins shall die as the unbelieving people in Judea are going to find out when the Babylonians come. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is death. And so the scripture is clear. Religion can't save, but many people think it can. But eventually, they will find out that they picked the wrong door. Well, that leads us to door number two. Door number two is the irreligious door. Irreligious. A lot of people, what does that word mean? Religious means that you're hostile or indifferent to religion, or you have absolutely no belief in God and you flat out reject him. So when Habakkuk writes in verse four, he's probably talking about the, the Babylonians, but of course we can bring it into our time. I'm gonna go through this one twice. He says, behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him. Let's stop right there. Now let's go slowly. Behold, remember what we said behold is, look with spiritual eyes, behold the proud. Another version says, look at the puffed up. The idea is inwardly it's someone who exalts themselves. They have an inflated view of self. His soul, another version says, his desire is not upright in him. Another version adds or says, look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. Again, we're going to stop right there. So God is telling the prophet, and by extension, as he's writing it down, the Bible readers, who would be us, the fate of those who are puffed up in pride against God, they will die. They will die physically, and they will die eternally and spend their eternal you know, life in hell. So what is pride according to God? There's many ways you could put it, but for our purposes today, we'll call it when we live our lives with confidence and trust and thing, in things other than God. Let's say that again. Pride is when we live our lives and place our confidence in and our trust in things other than God. 
So what do people put their confidence in? Well, wealth, wisdom, strength, success, popularity. Could be any number of, of things. Now, now you say, well, I, I don't really like that. But let me ask you a cultural question. Don't you resent it, certainly the headlines do, when the people of this country who are the people of privilege think they can do whatever they want because they've got the best lawyers and the best influence and, and they know how to get out of trouble. We're like, man, that's for the rich people. They can, they can do stuff and they don't get in any kind of trouble at all. And you don't like that. Well, apparently God has a problem with people who think they can do whatever they want, whether they are the quote-unquote people of privilege, even though we all are in this world. God gives us life. But God doesn't like the fact that we think we can do whatever we want. Psalm 20, verse 7 says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Now you're like, well, why would I, I don't know, what are you talking about? Well, that would be the, the sign of wealth. It would be the best military equipment of the day, a sign of, again, wealth and power. But, contrast, we will remember, some verses say, trust in the name of the Lord our God. So the Babylonians represent to us people who pursue themselves and their own desires with little to no thought of the Lord. Now, some are dead set against religion. Now, if Judging by point one, you'd have to say, Pastor Jim, you don't seem like you're all for religion. And I get that, but it's a different view than they would have of it. But more so, not that they're against religion, they are against God, or they are indifferent to him. You think, you know, what's wrong with being indifferent to God? If you're not for God, Jesus said, then you are against him. They are puffed up. The idea is they are swollen with pride. They are inwardly arrogant, crooked, and lacking integrity. Interesting thing, a lot of people say integrity is uh, what you are when no one's watching. I always like to tweak that a little and say, integrity is what you are when you think no one is watching. Because someone is always watching. Just a word to the wise, to those of us who are working from home right now, or who have relatively unsupervised work, or you young people. Mom and dad are maybe not around as much as they, are, they, they could be right now because of what things that are going on. Be very, very careful if left to yourself in how you spend your time. So neither door number one, religion, or door number two, irreligion or irreligious will get you the prize. Why? Because God classifies both of them as unjust or unrighteous, and the fate is death. Well, that takes us to door number three. Door number three is the righteous door. So let's look at verse four again and look at the very end. He says, but the just, some versions say the righteous, but the just or the righteous shall live by his faith. So we said in verse 2 that the Lord said to the prophet, write down the vision and make it plain, make it simple. And, and here it is. It's simple. Why? 
And, and so he said, so people can run with it. It's simple so people can understand it and people can run to tell others about it. Now, what I'm about to explain to you is very, very simple. Here's the problem. Our minds, our hearts, our souls have been clouded by door number one and door number two. We have been, we have been, been dealt the pressure all our lives of people saying, pick door number one, pick door number one, pick door number two, door number two. So we have to realize that there's what we call in counseling, there's interference. And so let's try and put the interference aside. Forget about that. Everything aside. Just let's focus and let's really concentrate. So for them, it was how they were to live in, in Habakkuk's day, when he says, the just shall live by his faith, it was how they were to live in a time of personal and national crisis. We covered this a couple weeks ago. And yet, what he says at the very, just the tail end of this verse, could be summarized as the great statement of the Bible. The just, the righteous, shall live by his faith. But, not the religious people, not the irreligious people, but the third group of people shall live by his faith. Now, to understand this is to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is to understand the Christian life and, and the essence of the Christian faith. Now, it's very interesting. Habakkuk says this, but the same thing was said of Abraham. And what's really interesting, Bible students, is it was said that, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness before the law of Moses. So a lot of people will say, well, we got the law. I don't read the Old Testament. It's the law and then grace came. No, 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 no. Grace came first. It was the grace of God bestowed upon Abraham, showed to us, all of us, and then the law of God came. We'll talk about that in a bit. Now, this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament, and I have full confidence in telling you this is the bedrock statement of how to get to heaven. This is the bedrock statement of how to receive. You don't do anything to earn it. We'll be talking about that, how to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, how to spend the rest of your eternity in heaven with God. This statement, the just or the righteous shall live by his faith, this is Christianity. Did you hear that? This is Christianity. What does it mean? It means that those who are judged righteous or just in God's eyes as a result of their faith shall live forever with God. Let me put it another way. Through God's empowered faith, the Lord gives his people the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And as we see here in Habakkuk, and we will in the New Testament, it results in not only the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but also in the daily faithfulness 
or let's say attempted faithfulness of God's people. It will give you a yearning for righteousness in your life. Now, this is not religion. This is not doing things for God. This is not like, hey, God, I'm going to do this, and you're going to be pretty happy with me. No, this is God reaching down to you. We talked about this Wednesday night, reaching down to you and pulling you up. That's what Christianity is. And so it is daily living here in Habakkuk in a loving and trusting relationship with God. We might call it keeping the faith. This is a complete contrast to religion. This is a complete contrast to the irreligious, to the hostile Babylonians who will die in their arrogance. Now you say, this is in the Old Testament before Jesus? Absolutely. Those who live in a right relationship with the Lord shall live. And they live by trusting in the Lord in his word, and in his promises. The wording is, is literally, it's really just three words. So, uh, in fact, it's going to be beautifully illustrated in chapter 3. And, and a literal translation of this might be something like this for us. The just or the righteous man by his faith will live. But it's essentially three words. Righteous faith live. That's really all we need to really kind of focus on, just and righteous, faith and live. This is the way the righteous live, trusting in the word of God, including, like in Habakkuk's day, in the dark times when they're absolutely unable to see the plan of God, absolutely unable to see the hand of God, how it is operating in their life for your good and for my good. True faith is faithfully lived out. That is is clear biblical teaching. True faith is faithfully lived out. And true faithfulness is a result of faith, all of a result of our trusting God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We might say it is a life of believing, it is a life of trusting, it is a life of enduring. I would I put third, I put let's say believing, trusting, obeying, and fourth, enduring and persevering. So after looking at the unrighteous religious people and the Babylonians, God calls his true people, and we want to go really slowly through the wording here and import it how how the the Bible writers in the New Testament expanded upon what Habakkuk said. God says, the just or the righteous shall live by his faith. Who are the just? Who are the righteous? So now we fast forward 650 years after the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ back to heaven into the New Testament, and we read these words by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. 
everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, the world was divided up into two types of people, Jews and non-Jews. For in it, what? The gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. And what does he say? The just shall live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk. So, and, and after this, you could make this the, the, an argument that this is the theme of Romans, considered to be the Apostle Paul's greatest work, and that he spends the rest of the book of Romans unpacking by what this means. That, that the Christian life is a life of faith, from beginning to end into eternity. So the Apostle Paul makes it clear, the righteous are those who trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not their own. So if I ask you why you're going to heaven, you say, I'm a good person. Whose righteousness are you trusting in? You're trusting in your own. That would put you in the category of religious So Paul wants us to understand, God wants us to understand, Christ wants us to understand that the righteous are those who trust in the righteousness of Jesus. But this righteousness, now what is is righteousness? It's It's a perfect innocence of sin before God must be possessed by anyone going to heaven. Now, you're like, that's impossible. I can't never do that. You're right. You can't. And I can't. And some of you, I know, you feel the pressure to live a perfect life. You know what? You can't do it. Should you want to live a righteous life and, you know, good before God? Of course, of course. But don't put that pressure on yourself. You say, well, how can I have this perfect innocence before God? Very easily, someone can give it to you. Someone can give it to you, and Jesus will, and you will receive the credit for his perfect life through faith and trust in him. So I think it's fair to say that Romans 1, 16, 17 is one of the Apostle Paul's summary of the gospel. You say, well, okay, I want to believe. I want to believe. How do I know that he will give it to me? Well, what did he say in there? It's for everyone who believes. Hmm, what do you think he's saying? I think he's saying it's for everyone who believes. In other words, the word belief is often equated with the word trust in the Scripture. Right now, a lot of you are looking for jobs, or you will be, and I'm sorry about that. But just imagine a job application place that says, all applications accepted. That is is what it is. Heaven is essentially if you're willing to trade your life for Jesus' life. If you're willing to say, take my life, Lord. I'll take on yours. I will trust in you. God says, if you do, I'll take you in. Now, some of you are, are saying, but you don't know what I've done. That's right, I don't. If I use my imagination, probably I'd get a pretty good idea. Some of you, I do know what you've done. You don't know what I've done. 
So what is it like? Well, yesterday was not a good day, was it? It was pouring all day long. So let's just imagine you're out maybe with the kids or walking the dog or you know, doing something like that. And let's say you're walking the dog, and the dog gets off the leash, and it runs across the, this you know, big field or something like that. And so you start chasing the dog, and you slip and you slide in a big pool of mud. So you're now, you're all wet, you're all soggy, you're all covered with mud, and you come home, and nobody even wants to let you in the house. You're just such a mess. Maybe we'll picture that as sin in our life. We're just dirty, we're a mess, we're not cleaned up, and we want to come in the house, and everybody's like, you're not coming in here like this. And God is like, you're not coming in here like this. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, think of it this way. Jesus says you can come in. Here, take a shower. Let me clean you up. And let me take this, instead of your muddy clothing, let me get rid of that and let me put this beautiful, white, clean robe upon you. You see, that's how God sees you when you put your trust in him. Oh, yes, practically we still sin. We do. But in position, in God's mind, we are now clean before him. That's why we said earlier, or I said earlier, that we need humility here because the forgiveness of sins and eternal life is a free gift. It's not something that you earn. The righteous person in God's eyes is someone who receives. I don't even like the word accepts. I like the word receives. What God has done for them, they open their hands and they receive God's gift. Now, in Habakkuk's day, he knew this. We said this earlier. The only hope for God's people was God's judgment. What did he have to do? God had to destroy the old and bring salvation, bring new life to his people. And the same is true today. When you see God's judgment on Jesus on the cross, God's saving righteousness is revealed to you. So let me tell you, what do you see? When you ponder the cross, and I would recommend that you do that every day. When you ponder the cross, what does that do to you? I mean, it's going to drive you to one of two places. It's either going to drive you to belief or unbelief. It's either going to drive you to affection or rebellion or indifference. It's either going to do nothing for you or it's going to activate faith in you. And when it activates faith in you, whether it's the first time or continuously, you can know that you are one of the just, that you are one of the righteous. Next, Habakkuk says that the just shall live, shall live. What, what, what does that mean? Well, once again, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, 650 years later, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone 
who does not continue in all things. What does all things mean? It means all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So he says you're cursed if you don't perfectly live out everything that's in the Bible. Well, that's not good news, is it? What is that? You have to be perfect. That you say, well, I'm pretty good. Verse 11, but no one. Hmm, what does no one mean? Remember, everyone means everyone. Well, no one means no one. But no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. He's like, <laughs> based upon what I just told you, it's obvious that no one is perfect except for Jesus, but no one is perfect that, that could, could be considered righteous or justified just as if they had never sinned in, in front of God in the sight of the Lord. For what hope is there? The just shall live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4. What happened in, in Galatia? The Apostle Paul went to Galatia and he explained uh, how to be declared righteous or just and innocent of all sins before God. He explained to people how to have the perfect life of Jesus Christ, which a lot of people don't spend enough time talking about. That's what made him a perfect sacrifice for sins. He explained how to have the perfect life of Jesus Christ credited to you as if you let it by simply putting your trust in the work of Christ. What is the work of Christ? God became a man. He lived a perfect life in our place. He died a sinner's death in our place. He rose from the dead in our place. So we put our trust in, we call that the work of the cross a lot of times, our trust in Jesus Christ. Then the Apostle Paul, the churches are going up and going well. He went out to other regions, and some false teachers came to Galatia, and they said to him, okay, Paul's fine. you got to trust Jesus, but you got to start adding in some religious activities. Sadly, they went from trusting in Christ alone, the people in the churches in the region of Galatia, to trusting in themselves and good works. The Apostle Paul then writes to them saying, that can never save you. Why? You've gone back to door number one. You've gone back to religion. And religion can never, ever, ever make you perfect in God's eyes. Let's imagine for a second. For someone like me, it's a big uh, imagination because I don't drink. And, and if I had this, I would sell it. But let's imagine you had a bottle of rare an expensive wine. By the way, the Scripture seems to indicate that you can have a drink. It seems to be against drunkenness. No charge for that commercial. Uh, but let's imagine that you had uh, a bottle of rare and expensive wine, and you opened it, and you mixed it with grape juice. You mixed it with grape juice. You say, oh, well, people can never do stuff like that. You know, there's actually a lot of fraud in, in, the, in the alcohol business, I know, because my my son is involved in, in, in security fraud and stuff like that with computer stuff. And actually, people do stuff like that. They do stuff like that. They'll open it up, they'll pour the good stuff up, they'll put junk in, and they'll try and return it. And so let's say you opened up this rare and expensive bottle of wine. You opened it up, you mixed it with grape juice. What's it worth now? It's worth absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the truth is, whenever we add or subtract from the gospel, 
we do not just devalue it, we make it worthless. It's worth nothing. Now, that may insult you. I get it. That may insult you, but not me. Because, Jesus, because of Jesus' perfect life, because of the cross and resurrection, that makes my imperfect attempts at faithful living okay in God's sight. See, those attempts at living for God, for all of us who are followers of Jesus, are to be motivated by grace, motivated by what Christ has done for us, not to earn righteousness, but out of gratitude that Jesus' righteousness, that beautiful white, clean robe, has already been placed upon us. We're not earning that robe. We're not earning it. It's given to us by trusting in Jesus. Finally, Habakkuk says, the just, we covered who they are, shall live, we just talked about that, by his faith. For there we turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. I'm, uh, I'm only going to read two verses, but it's really probably a larger section we could cover. And what was going on in the book of Hebrews is the people were suffering. And so here's what it says, verse 37 and 38. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will, will come and will not tarry. It's like we talked about last week in Habakkuk. So God says, wait. Remember, this is New Testament, 650 years later. And then look what he says, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. What is the writer to the Hebrews doing? He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. But anyone, if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, there's a, some similarities and one critical di difference between the book of Habakkuk and the book of Hebrews. Like Habakkuk, the recipients of the book of Hebrews needed what I will call Holy Spirit-empowered, faithful, patient endurance in the midst of suffering. That's a mouthful, so let me say it again. They needed the same thing that the people, the people in Hebrews needed the same thing that the people in Habakkuk's day, the true followers of God needed in that day, Holy Spirit-empowered, faithful Patient endurance in suffering. Like we said already, you can wait. God will empower you to wait. But the situation for the Hebrews has one thing that I think makes it worse. In Habakkuk's day, they were suffering for their unfaithfulness, while the Hebrews were largely suffering for their faithfulness. You're saying... Pastor Jim, that I can actually be faithful to God and I might suffer for it? Oh, yeah. Same thing happened to Jesus. Same thing happened to apostles. Can happen to us as well. But, and here's the sad part of Hebrews. Instead of the trials and the suffering drawing them closer to Jesus, it drew some further away. And it's very interesting in how current it is what was happening to the Hebrews. As they suffered, some started skipping church. And that happens to a lot of people. Life goes rough, and they start skipping church. Now, you could, we could sit and talk you know, for a long time on why that is, 
But I'm going to be honest with you. One of the reasons that I know it is, because I'll talk to people like that, and you know what they'll say to me? Well, everybody else in church seems to have their life together so much more than me. I'm like, you need to get out of the house more. (laughs) None of us have our life together. None of us have our life together. And church is the place of refuge for God's people, where, you know what, we need to be more ourselves in church and less putting on the fake mask and the facade of, of what's going on. And so, and so the, they were starting to skip church. And then what happens is the, the further you get away from the worship of God's people, you know, with God's people, and, and the hearing of God's word, which is a form of worship, and then going out and living it out, the further you get away from that, you start to sin more. And the more you start to sin, what happens? The less you seem to care about it. Oh, you might have your periods of it, but it gets easier and easier and easier as you become desensitized to it. Notice what God says about those who don't continue. My soul has no pleasure in him. So what is, what is God encouraging us to do? To press on. Remember we said Holy Spirit endurance. To press on because the Lord is coming. Remembering that the Christian life, as Paul said, it's faith by faith in Romans. It is by faith from beginning to end. Now, here's something we have to be very, very careful about in America today. Let's be careful of the gospel that says, just believing, and it doesn't really matter how you live. Just believing and not desiring to live for God by grace-motivated effort. You live for God because you love Him, because He empowers you, because you're grateful to Him, because you know it's the right thing to do. You're not trying to gain His acceptance. You're, in, you're, you're thrilled because you already have His acceptance because of what Jesus has done for you. The gospel of just say a prayer and you're in and go living however you want to live, that gospel is not taught in the Word of God. And the fallaway rate from people who buy into that is absolutely huge. That's why you, when you talk to people and they're like, yeah, the people come and they go and they come and they go because they never really grasp a hold of the gospel or better yet, the gospel never really grasped a hold of them. Now, some of you, you probably heard this and you're like, I'm not so sure I believe you, Pastor Jim. I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm asking you to believe God. We just read from Hebrews chapter 10, correct? Get a Bible, move from Hebrews chapter 10 into Hebrews chapter 11, and it will tell you, right, the great hall of faith, it will tell you about people who trusted in God, who believed in God. And right after that, it will tell you what they did as an expression of that trust. I'm not going to use any examples. I want you to go read it for yourself. How they responded to what God had done for them. It's it's the next chapter. In Habakkuk's day, 
They had the temple. We're, we got religion, man. We got religion. We're good. I go to church. I'm fine. God's, oh, God is so thrilled when I show up. Did it sound like that in some of the wording that we read? Jesus said the same thing. He quoted Isaiah. He said, you know, you honor me with your lips. You sing the songs. You say the prayers, but your hearts are far from me. God's not happy with that. And then there's others like the Babylonians. They hate God. They're indifferent to God. And, and our culture today, like them, and like our culture today, our culture has, seems to have no category. Neither did the religious people of Habakkuk's day. A lot of the religious people of Jesus' day, the, the Babylonians, a lot of people in this world have no category for God holding people responsible for their behavior. No category for, for people who say to God, I'm going to do what I want. But Habakkuk was perplexed in wondering. He couldn't figure out how God could reconcile his forgiveness with his holiness. Because the answer was the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, the just dies for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the perfect for the proud. Jesus for you and Jesus for me. That's what happened there. That's what that was. That's what that was. We say Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Please, loved ones, Reword that and say this. Jesus died on the cross instead of me for my sins. And pray that God opens up your heart. So there we have it. We have three doors. Trusting in your religion. Trusting in yourself. Or trusting in the Savior's perfect life including his death and resurrection for you. You see, it's really only two doors. It's just, it's, just, it's just the way you don't get in has subdivisions in it. Trusting in religion is trusting in yourself, and you don't get the prize. And so the real choice is faith or unbelief. Like we said, you look at Jesus, and that vision of Jesus on the cross, it drives you to one of two extremes. It drives you to faith, or it drives you to unbelief. It drives you to trade your life for Jesus' life. You have to trade everything to get the big deal. Or others, they just say, hey, I'm just going to take what I've already won and I'm going to go home. I'm going to play it safe. In the famous Good Shepherd passage of John chapter 10, Jesus said this, John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. You want to know which door to choose? Jesus tells you, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. So the door to heaven is a person. A person that is to be trusted. That 
thought, that vision, that, it's a, that God is a person to be trusted, is a big part of why God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. So the vision would be clear. So it would be crystal clear. And if it's not clear to you today, friend, take a moment. As you think about tomorrow, people dying for our country, think of Jesus dying for you. Or take a moment today or even a moment right now and ask God to show you, ask Jesus to show you your need for him and to show you not only with clarity, but to show you with urgency so that you would put your trust in Jesus now. If today you hear the call of Jesus and you desire to enter by the door, we'll close with three simple steps, sometimes called the ABCs of salvation. Admit, believe, and confess, or admit, believe, and commit. Admit to God that you're a sinner and that you can't make heaven. Believe in Jesus. Put your trust in him. Confess Jesus as your Lord and commit yourself to him because on the cross, he already committed himself to you. Let's pray. Lord, we 